I never thought to associate a transfiguration to us. When in fact, this is exactly what Paul does in Romans chapter 12. When he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of Elohim, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto Elohim, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transfigured. There's a transfiguration that all of us experience, which will come as we renew our minds. That means we're getting the garbage of the old man out and the truth of the new man that is going to come to us in our relationship with the Almighty. And we'll experience the same kind of transfiguration, not in the sense of the vision that Peter, James, and John, but our own transfiguration. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. The transfiguration of Messiah Yeshua is one of the most significant events in the life of our Savior. What happened during that event was a foreshadow of things to come that would impact all believers who put their faith in Messiah Yeshua. Peter, James, and John had the fortunate privilege of witnessing the transfiguration in order to declare what they saw to the disciples not present and all disciples of Messiah Yeshua past, present, and future. Several conversations ensued between some of those who were present that would confirm instructions Yeshua had revealed to his disciples prior to his transfiguration and point to what would take place in the days ahead. Join in with us as we listen in to the discussion that took place during the Transfiguration and discover how this miraculous event prophetically signals the impact on all believers today. The message title in this podcast is The Transfiguration. So, let's study. So again, today we're going to be talking about the transfiguration. The transfiguration of Messiah Yeshua is one of the most significant events in the life of our Savior. What happened during that event was a foreshadow of things to come that would impact all believers who put their faith in Messiah Yeshua. Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, had the fortunate privilege of being in that environment, witnessing the transfiguration so that they could declare what they saw to the disciples not present and all disciples of Messiah Yeshua, past, present, and future. Several conversations ensued between some of those who were present that would confirm instructions Yeshua had revealed to his disciples prior to his transfiguration and then point to what would take place in the days ahead. As we look at this, we're going to have some discussion and discover how this miraculous prophetic event signals the impact that it would have or supposed to have on all believers today. Now, the synoptic gospels that this event is uh, covered in is in Matthew 17 here, Mark, and in Luke. And so you'll find this story in all three of those particular gospels. 
As we've discussed in previous teachings in Discipleship 101, Mark nor Luke were listed amongst the disciples of Yeshua. And it's important for us to keep those things in mind. It is safe to conclude that both Mark and Luke received testimony of this event from Peter after the resurrection of Messiah Yeshua. Now, those of you who have read through the Gospels, there was specific names to the 12 disciples that were actually called apostles among the disciples of Messiah. Now, of course, we know that there were many, many disciples that Yeshua had over the course of his ministry. And after his resurrection, as we've read through the writings of Paul and in Acts and even in Luke and other of the Gospels, we find that Yeshua appeared to many of them. In one appearance, the Bible says that he appeared to over 500 of his disciples. We know that when we went through John, that he had a multitude of disciples that when he taught on the bread or the, the blood, uh, his blood and his body being the blood and the body that they would have to eat. The Bible tells us in John six, that many of his disciples turned around and they didn't follow him anymore. Now there are people who were his disciples that we can say that they believed things that he said, even though they didn't follow him or continue to follow him in the footsteps as he continued his ministry. Once you have heard truth, truth has a tendency to take root in you. You may not fully understand it at the time, but many of us today, we are experiencing things that we heard many years ago as truth, but at the time we weren't serving or walking in the way that we're walking now. And today, a lot of that stuff we heard makes sense where it didn't make sense to us then because we didn't know. All we knew is what we had been taught. When we read the Bible, most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we read the Bible based on the information we had, which is the conclusions we drew from what we read. Most people go to the Bible with their belief systems already in place. And when your belief system is already in place and you're part of a denomination, a congregation, a church, then it's reinforced by the teachings. And there are things that we have been taught that we've come to realize was not true. Now, I know many of you never celebrated Christmas, but I grew up amongst that Christmas spirit. I'm sure many of you have been keeping the Sabbath all your life, but I was in church on Sundays, not on the Sabbath. And I believed that stuff. I believed in Christmas. I believed in Easter. I believed in Sunday worship. I believed that we weren't under the law. I believed that we were under grace. And those belief systems caused me to create my own belief system. Just like many of you. You may not know this, but you have a belief system and there are some belief systems that are in you that hinder you from receiving what Messiah has to say. 
even though he said it, there are people who still struggle with it, as we're going to see. Mark's gospel narrative most likely came from the testimony of Peter and other of Yeshua's disciples, being that Mark knew them and Peter who spent time meeting in Mark's home. Now, before I go to this verse, I want us to note that if Mark and Luke, because we're going to see there were three disciples up on that mountain, three, Peter, James, and John. So if there was only three disciples up on that mountain, how could Mark write about it? He wasn't there. How could Luke write about it? He wasn't there. I threw that out there to stretch your thinking. Mark, the Bible tells us, Acts chapter 12, when Peter was come to himself, he said, now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel. Peter was in jail. The angel came and delivered Peter from the jail. And when Peter uh, was delivered and had delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews, verse 12, Acts 12. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was what? Mark. This is one of those times where Mark is mentioned. Peter goes to his house. There are people in the house praying. They're praying concerning Peter because Peter's in jail, right? So now these folks have gathered at Mark's home. And here we see the scriptures connect Mark with Peter. You won't see this. Most of us who've read through the gospel narratives know that Mark was connected to Paul. Matter of fact, there was a dispute between Paul and Barnabas concerning Mark. But Acts chapter 12 connects Mark to who? Peter. Luke stated in the beginning of his gospel narratives, for as much as has have taken in hand, or for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, from which the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So Luke, in the beginning of his gospel, lets us know that the information that he's about to write in his gospel was based on eyewitness testimonies from ministers of the word. Why? Because he wasn't there. So what did he do? He did a thorough investigation. He investigated, he interviewed, if you would, so that he could write an accurate account to this fellow that he will refer to as Theophilus. Speaking of the apostles and disciples of Yeshua, Luke said, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. So we've connected Mark to Peter, and we see that Luke, on his own investigation, investigated, wrote the gospel according to Luke, and then was able to write all of Acts because Luke not only investigated the apostles and other disciples, but he followed Paul. This is how Luke in Acts can write everything that occurred from the time Messiah ascended, from the gathering, 
from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. How many of you know Paul wasn't at the, uh, Paul wasn't one of the 120 in that room? Neither was Luke. But who was in there? All the disciples, including Peter. So the first half of the book of Acts, it seems as if Mark or Luke, it seems as if Luke depended a lot on the eyewitness accounts of the ministers of the word who were actually there. And then in the latter part of Luke, I mean of Acts, which Luke wrote, he actually followed Paul. He was Paul's disciple or he followed Paul and watched and witnessed. And Luke, in fact, was the only writer in the Bible in the New Testament that wasn't Hebrew. Luke was a Greek, a physician. Verse four, that thou mayest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So Luke investigated the only eyewitness in the transfiguration were who? Peter, James, and John. How do we know that? Verse one, Matthew 17. And after six days, Yeshua taketh Peter, James, and John. And John was the brother of James and bringeth them into a high mountain apart. So what we find is that Yeshua now after six days, notice he didn't say six days later. Now it's important because people miss stuff. And then they, they want to talk about how, you know, the possibility of the Bible, you know, contradicting itself. But you really have to do the research and not have your denominational glasses on when you read. Because what he said, once again, is an and after. So what we know is six days has passed, but we don't know what day this is in which they go up on the mountain. Why? Because it's going to be stated in Luke that about eight days later. So we know that there was a period after six days and then between eight days, which it could have been the seventh day or the eighth day after six days from the discussion after six days from when Messiah told his disciples that he had to go up to Jerusalem. He was going to be taken before the elders and the chief priests and all of them. And then he would be crucified. He would be killed. He would resurrect. And remember, Peter pulled him to the side. Now, remember the revelation Peter had had that when he says, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter had the revelation. You are the son of the living Elohim. You are the Messiah. And now he's rebuking the Messiah after he have a revelation of the Messiah. And I want to show you something because your flesh by its actions has the tendency to rebuke the words of Messiah. Your words may be in line. But your actions, when you look at your actions, you look at some of the things that you do, you have to ask yourself, is what I'm doing in line with what his word says? Because I don't believe a lover of God would intentionally 
disobey his commandments. But our actions, brothers and sisters, show us. If we tell a little white lie or a little black lie, if we stretch the truth, if we do something because it's in our heart to do and we want to do it, and then we got to justify ourselves in doing it because we know that the scriptures may have some issue with it. When we compromise, and you have to know, you have to know, because what I've come to the place in my walk is that if I truly want to see the blessing and protection of the Most High 24 hours a day, seven days a week, then I have to be in alignment and in obedience to Him. How often? 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Whenever I'm not inquiring. I don't acknowledge him. I make decisions without consulting him. I make plans and arrangements without prayer, without clearing it. I commit myself to things that he hasn't okayed me to commit myself to. I compromise when it comes down to family members and resources Utilizing his resources for my own personal or for the personal use of one of my children. See, I'm going to tell you, we're convinced that we acknowledge him in all our ways when we know we don't. And don't think about it. But then we want to pray for certain things, but we don't talk to him about all things. Hmm. And yet we're convinced we love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. When we know that that's not how we operate 24-7, you have to be consciously, intentionally minded to stay focused on what it is he wants from you. When you find yourself getting agitated, Ready to cuss somebody out? <laughs> Let me move on because some of y'all are squirming. Now, it says, after six days from the discussion Yeshua had with his disciples and Peter rebuked him, Yeshua takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain to pray. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us why they went up there. You see, Luke stated that the reason they went up on the mountain was what? To pray. That's what he says in Luke 9, 28. And it came to pass about an eight days, about an eight days. And what did Matthew and you'll find Luke, I mean, Mark writes the same thing after six days. Now, is after six days, six days? But if you're not mindful, you'll conclude six days later. And that's not what he's saying again. So Luke says about. Because somebody would say, well, you know, the Bible contradicts itself. Luke says eight days. Peter, I mean, Matthew and Mark says six days. No, your reading is off. It's not that the Bible contradicts itself. You're contradicting yourself in how you read. Understandest thou what you read? Obviously not. Because if you did, then you wouldn't make a statement like that. So he took Peter, John, and James, and they went up into a mountain to do what? To pray. That's why they were up there. 
while they were praying, Yeshua was transfigured. Matthew doesn't tell us that. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So the way Matthew paints the picture is that they went up there, and when they got up there, Yeshua was automatically transformed. When that's not the case, while they were up there praying, a transformation took place. I'm going to tell you now, if there's going to be transformation in your life, and it's supposed to be, it's going to require time for praying. It's going to require time for fasting. Next week, we're going to look at the circumstances that happened immediately when they came down from that mountain. And we're going to deal with the subtlety of unbelief within us. Now, it's hard to convince a believer that they are an unbeliever. But I've coined a phrase called unbelieving believers. There are unbelieving believers. When you think about it, Yeshua didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets, and yet there are believers who believe he did. That's what they call themselves. And now what the enemy has done, because at first it started off with simply, you know, we're saved by grace through faith. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, saved by grace through faith. But then it moved from saved by grace through faith to grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. And then it was mixed and it's faith alone, separating faith and grace. So the faith teachers teach faith when it's appropriate, grace. The grace teachers preach grace and when appropriate, a little faith. But the writing says we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. This is the gift. The gift that the Almighty gives us is he shares his grace with us, but he has given us a measure of faith because without faith, it's impossible to please him. You can't please him operating in grace. You're not even trying to please him operating in grace because grace gives you the permission to not try. Take it like this. Well, anything you do is works. It's works, brother. <laughs> well, like, let your light shine so men shall see your good works. Those who believe on me, the works I do, they shall do. We are, as Paul continues, God's workmanship created in Messiah to do what? Good works. See, the grace perversion gives people permission to walk in disobedience while at the same time claim to have faith. And when you expose that nonsense and you think about it, man, I actually believe that. But see, this is where the exposure of the devil, there are going to be people saying, man, I can't believe I believe that guy while they're splish splashing in the same lake he's splashing in. 
So he was transfigured before them and his face did shine. The word transfigured here is metamorpho and it's two words, metamorpho, to change into another form, to transform, to transfigure. Messiah's appearance was changed and was replended with divine brightness. But there's a couple of other words that is used here and it's transform and change. That is also associated with this word transfiguration. We'll look at those in a moment. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias. Now here's what uh, Matthew captures Moses and Elias talking with him, but Matthew don't tell us what they were talking about. On the other hand, Luke gives us insight into the conversation, even though he wasn't there. And it came to pass about in eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. As he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there were, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So here's the conversation. Moses and Elias show up in this vision as we're going to find it was. It was actually a vision. They begin to have conversation. Now, the disciples who are saying, who are there with them, they're there for the purpose of being a witness. Because remember now, oftentimes when Messiah goes and pray, he goes and pray by himself. This time he goes and pray and he specifically takes them with him. And now they are witnesses of what took place. Whereas when he goes and pray by themselves, they aren't. Father speaking to him like the time he went up and prayed and father showed him who the 12 were to. And he came down off the mountain and think about it. Most people think that all he had was 12 disciples. And when he came down from the mountain, he chose 12 disciples. Well, why would he have to choose 12 disciples if he already got 12 disciples? He chose 12 disciples from among all of the disciples and them. He called apostles. He had many disciples. And now he's saying they're speaking to him of his decease. So they're having a conversation which confirms to the disciples, the conversation Messiah had had in the previous chapter. He's going to go up to Jerusalem. Now they have the ability to listen in on this conversation. They're listening and this word, decease, is exodus. It deals with his departing. Moses and Elias is having this conversation with him. He knows. Peter rebuked him. But now Peter is being affirmed in the conversation in the vision, which now solidifies what he has been told by Messiah prior to this event. Now. They're there at that moment talking to him. You know that this is going to happen in Jerusalem and it doesn't give us all of the conversation, but I suspect 
that it was the Almighty communicating to him through his messengers the details of what would later unfold. We don't get the privilege of seeing that, but we know how it unfolds, and they come to prepare him for this unveiling or this unfolding of events. Because we know that prior to him going, um, being captured, that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. The Bible says he prayed for three solid hours. If it be his will, let this cup pass. So he's very familiar based on the conversation that he's having with the messengers that have come to talk to him about what's going to happen. And now he's getting insight of what is actually going to happen, which gives him that extra courage and that boost to come to the conclusion. Nevertheless, my will, let me tell you some brothers and sisters, your will will get in the way of his will. What you want, will get in the way of what he wants for you. <laughs> and people will convince themselves just like children. You know, it's like, mama, I want a rattler snake. No, baby, you don't want no rattler. I want to play with him. No, baby, you don't want to do that. That's a dangerous snake. That's a poisonous snake. That's a venomous snake. I do want one. You see, people... When they want something, like children, they will convince themselves, like children, to get what they want, only to get it, get bit, infected, and then time out, well, I don't know if I heard God. You were so convinced when you was doing what you wanted to do. Matter of fact, you wanted to tell everybody it was God's will. And now you realize that a lot of the stuff you thought was the will of the Almighty was your will. How did you convince yourself? Because that's what you wanted. And I have to work at this, brothers and sisters. I'm going to tell you, you have to work at it. Because there's still stuff in you that you want that may not necessarily be what he wants for you. <laughs> and you'll do what you know to do. You'll start talking yourself into it. And then convincing those around you that that's what his will is. Mm -hmm. The word Exodus is used in reference to Joseph because this is a Greek term that is being used here, departing Exodus in Hebrews eleven twenty two. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing. Joseph made mention of the Exodus. That's what that word is of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones, which is probably how the book got the name Exodus. But we know that the books that Moses wrote, Moses only wrote one book. Now within the book that Moses wrote was the book of the covenant. But Moses only wrote one book by the time, as we learned on Thursday, by the time the theologians got done with it, he had written five books. And in those five books, it was theologians that gave the books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those words are not mentioned per se. Moses wrote the book, one book, from Genesis to 
the last chapter of Deuteronomy, which he didn't finish because he was dead. And so there's a part of Deuteronomy that comes into play, either Joseph, either Joshua finishing it or theologians. And this is why when we read the Bible, we have to be able to make sure that we understand the contextual principle so that we can read the Bible in the context and not be led astray by so many people that we have biblical conversations with like. So Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. So here we find Moses and Elijah talk with Yeshua about his death, his departure, his decease, his exodus that would take place at Jerusalem. Luke writes, but Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. Now, here's another clue. Why didn't he say, but James, who was with them, or John, who was with them? Is it possible that Luke is telling us who is talking to him about this event? Because after all, he wasn't there. He specifically uses Peter. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. Who is the they that were with him? James and John. And when they were awake, now it seems as if they went to sleep, but they didn't go to sleep. They just wasn't fully aware of what was going on around them because it says, and when they were awake, now it says they were heavy with sleep. It doesn't say they went to sleep. You see, and so, and when they were awake, and that word means fully aware, fully awake, totally awake. You ever been groggy? You're not sleep, but you're not fully awake. They saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Now notice this. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Yeshua, master, it is good for us to be here. Notice, and it came to pass as they departed from him. Peter now wants to build three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. So Peter recognized these because it's a vision. And one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So he's speaking, not knowing. In another version, it says, for he didn't know what else to say. But the fact is, is that there are times when we're, we're talking because we don't know what else to say, which is when we should be quiet. Then answered Peter and said unto him, according to Matthew 17, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And what this does is it gives us a window into Peter's thinking. It would take time to build the tabernacles. If Peter is speaking from a fluent intellect, in order for him to build a tabernacle, three of them, that's not something he's going to pop his finger and it would happen. They got to collect the material to build it and then build it, which would take time, meaning that he kind of planned on being there for a while. And this is one of those things, you know, that 
many years ago, as I was looking at this verse, it's as if there's a point where you can get so caught up in your communion with the Almighty to where you don't want to leave that space. You don't want to deal with the circumstances, deal with the issues that are around you, people and their problems. See, it's not my job to solve your problems unless you consider me your savior. It's your responsibility. And you can't control other people and manipulate them in and bend them to your will. You can't do that because what you'll find yourself is moving into witchcraft. You have to allow the almighty to deal with you and give him space to deal with those around you. And in the process, you have to know the kind of relationship you're going to have with them because he, here's what you will do if you're not careful. Here's what people do. People manipulate each other. Why? Because they're trying to get them to do what they want them to do. Whether we know it or not, we all operate out of control. And I'm not saying that we are out of control. I'm saying we operate based on our desire to control situations and to control people. And somehow we can even convince ourselves that this is what God wants. And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, it's a lot easier to do than you think. What happens if your husband don't want to stop eating pork? What you going to do? You'll probably come up with all the rationale of how pork is killing him, how there's worms and parasites in it. And all the other things that the Bible says, the next thing you know, you start beating them over the head with the Bible, right? And then you say, well, I want some pork. And when you go get the groceries, then you buy it. And it's like, you know what? I'll buy groceries. But if you want pork, you're going to have to get it yourself. Well, that's not being a good wife. Well, you know, you got to make a balance between being a good wife and doing the detestable thing, the abominable thing. Because what if he says, you know, we're out of money, honey. I need you to go and uh, stand on the corner. You're going to be a good wife and go stand on the corner, collect a few dollars to pay the rent. You see, we will <laughs> do within our own framework and we'll take a stand <laughs> I'm getting in trouble. Let me move on. While he yet spake, and this is, you know, this is one of those situations where Peter is talking, father interrupts him. It's like, okay, whose words are more important at this moment? What Peter is saying and what the Almighty is saying. Because Peter is talking about these tabernacles. It's good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles. And then he probably would have gone on in the conversations of how are we going to build the tabernacles and start asking a bunch of questions of how you want the tabernacle to be erected. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. You ever had somebody who is just, and I ain't talking about me. So, yeah, brother, you kind of, mm-hmm. So while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, 
This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear you him. Now in saying that there's four people up there, Messiah, James, John, and Peter. Father makes a distinction is who in who he's pleased with. Now, when he makes the distinction of who he's pleased with, he also makes it clear for the others who they need to be listening to in order for them to be found pleasing. You'll miss this if you don't see it. If he's pleased with Yeshua, then how are you going to get him to be pleased with you? Listening to your preacher? Listening to your church? Your bishop? Or listening to Yeshua? Because I'm going to tell you something. You know, even Peter says, listen, guys, let me tell you something. <laughs> Peter, James, and John. Now, of the two, Peter wrote first and second Peter. John, according to historians, wrote John, first, second, and third John. Paul wasn't there. Paul was nowhere in the mix of this walk with Messiah. But do you know, preachers not only have exalted Paul over Messiah, but they've made Paul the authority over Peter and John. Notice when the Christians and the preachers want to preach about Messiah, their default is who? Paul, wait a minute, John and Peter were there. They walked with him. Paul had an encounter. They had relationship. They saw, they heard, they witnessed, and rally. Do you find anything in any of their writings that contradict or even appeared to contradict Peter or John that would contradict Yeshua. And yet when it comes down to Paul, Peter wrote, said, listen, they pervert the scriptures. They take what Paul says and pervert it like they do the other scriptures. What other scriptures? Because the only scripture that was available at the time Peter made the statement was the Tanakh. There was no Matthew, there was no Mark, there was no Luke, there was no John, there was no Acts, there was no 1st and 2nd Corinthians, there was none of Paul's letters. Peter wasn't referring to Paul's letters as scripture, he was referring to the scripture. Paul's letters contain scripture, but not everything in Paul's letters are scripture. And you have to be able to distinguish what the scriptures teach and Paul's writings, because everything you know about Paul, you didn't learn from Paul. You learned from your preachers. And you were convinced that you learned it from Paul. No, you didn't. Because some of these people saying, you know, that they haven't sat at the feet of Peter. I mean, or Yeshua, John or Peter. They've sat at the feet of their preachers who taught them about what Paul said. 
While Peter was speaking, Father interrupted him and spoke to them to listen to Yeshua. Verse six. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were so afraid. And Yeshua came, touched them and said, arise and be not afraid. Verse eight. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Yeshua only. And then verse nine. And as they came down from the mountain, Yeshua charged them saying, tell the vision to no man until. Tell the vision to no man until. Until. So what is he saying? Tell the vision to no man until the son of man be risen again from the dead. In other words, don't tell anybody about this until I go through the process, which you witness up here on the mountain. What's going to happen at Jerusalem after my resurrection. When I resurrect from the grave, then you are free to tell people about what you witness. And he says, tell no man. Tell the vision. What is it? Tell the vision. They had a vision. What they saw was vision. Yeshua gave them instructions to not tell anyone. And according to Mark, they kept that to themselves, discussing it with one another. And then Luke wrote, they told no man in those days, indicating before the resurrection. Verse 36, Luke chapter 9. And when the voice was passed, Yeshua was found alone. They kept it close and told no man in those days. Any of those things which they had seen. Mark wrote, they kept the saying, verse 10, Mark 9, and they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. The resurrection. It's like, okay. So now when Yeshua do resurrect, he's going to tell them, didn't I tell y'all I was going to do this? And yet they had a hard time believing it. He told them, and yet they had a hard time believing it. You see, there's many things that he's written and said and spoke, and we have a hard time believing it. You know, one of the hardest things that we have to trying to believe that the works he did, we should do. Why do you have such a hard time believing that? Because of how you see yourself. Well, how do you see yourself? Who gave you your identity? Because you operate based on the identity that you have of yourself. If you don't believe you can do something, you won't. If you want to keep the peace and be a men pleaser, you will. If you don't rock the boat, you, you know, you, you just won't. You just go along to get along. You become all things to all people. And next thing you know, you start compromising who you are or who you're supposed to be. And you never really come into the realization of who he has called you to be. I refuse to let people put that on me because they will. Everybody around you will try to put that on you. They'll demonize you. They'll speak against you. They'll call you a false teacher. They'll call you a false prophet. They'll tell you that you're misleading, that you're lying, that you don't understand like they understand. And you know, you, you've been under that cloud. You know where they're coming from. And then they frustrate you and you find yourself arguing with them. It's why you arguing with people who don't know what they're talking about. You're trying to convince them. They are already convinced. They're trying to unconvince you. And every time you say and show them, well, well, then they want to jump over in another area. Like, you know, stay in context. 
You can't twist that over here and push that over there to try to make your point. That's what the preachers did. And now you done bought it hook, line, and sinker. You, who are you following? Are you following Yeshua? Are you following your church? Are you following your preacher? It's not that I don't care about your situation. It's that I don't get involved in your situation if you don't invite me. I'm not in your business. I'm not a busybody. If you don't want to do what the word says, that's on you. You just, you just suffer the consequences of what the word says. You, you just deal with the issue. If you want hardship and you don't want to see the hand and the power and the blessings and the prosperity and all that, nobody can make you see that. And you have to be convinced within yourself. Because if you're not convinced within yourself, other people can unconvince you. Have you doubting what you believe? But once you know, sometimes you got to separate yourself from those folks. But sometimes you just have to stand your ground. And in the midst of standing your ground, not lose heart. Because after you've gone through this a few times, you know what will happen? Is that you'll just start going through the motion without even realizing you're going through the motion. This is life. This is life changing. And I'm going to tell you something. I'd rather have the Almighty on my side than the world against me. Why? Because if he's on my side, he's more than the world against me. And whoever is in the world and anyone who is not interested in putting their faith in Messiah and keeping the commandments of Jehovah, then we're not on the same page. And if I can't get them on the page that I'm on, they're trying to get me on the page they're on. And guess what you have? Conflict. I've decided I'm not going to enter into conflict. These buttons that you used to could push, you know, I've, I've turned the power off. <laughs> Took some wire cutters. Click, 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 click. So ain't no more buttons here. And if by some strange revelation, you seem to find one that I overlooked. Thank you. Click. <laughs> and they kept that saying with themselves, according to Mark, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, because they, they got some questions. They asked him. Now notice the question, why say the scribes that Elias must come first? See, Yeshua is telling them, because see, Peter has the revelation that you are the Messiah. James and John just partook of a vision that this is the son of Elohim. And now here it is. They're having some discussion. He's the son of God. He's the son of God. He's the son of God. But doesn't the scribes teach? Now we bring in the scribes. They don't say the prophet. They say their teacher, the teachers. Cause the scribes are what the teachers of the law. You got Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. Scribes are the teachers of the law. And they say, well, why does the scribes teach? Because, see, they're perplexed in the fact that you hear what happened to Elijah. You hear what happened to Elijah. Doesn't the scribes teach that Elijah must come first? Because here they are. It's like, you know, I'm not refuting because what we just saw is evident to us 
But the order seems to be off because Elijah hasn't come according to them. And his disciples asked him, according to Matthew 17, verse 10, why then say the scribes? Now notice we looked at Mark and now we're looking at Matthew that Elias must first come. So the question was posed because it was well known and taught by the scribes, the teachers of the law, that before the Messiah comes, Elijah had to come according to the prophets. Malachi 4, 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So Messiah answers, he says unto them, Elias truly shall come first. But what happened? You're here. We're, he says, and restore all things. What did he say? Elias truly shall come first. He says, he truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elisha has come already. And they knew him not. But have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the son of man suffer of them. Now, look at the testimony. We're going to go back into Luke and look at the testimony that the angel of Jehovah spoke to Zacharias, who was about to bring forth a child in his old age with his wife, Elizabeth. Luke 1, 15. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, speaking of John the Baptist. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. He was filled with the Holy Ghost. He was born with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Now, if you watch the ministry of John the Baptist, they came from all over the place. They came from all all over the place saying, who are you? Are you that prophet? Are you, are you? And he says, listen, I'm not Messiah. I'm not that prophet. So he, he's letting them know who he is. And then he says, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the father to the children. Who's saying this to um, Zechariah? It's the angel. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is what the prophet said. Who gave the prophets the words to speak? Jehovah. You see, the prophets spoke things that they really didn't understand. Moses wrote things that he didn't understand. To think that Moses understood the Torah would be incorrect. Why? Because he only knew in part. He received and he wrote. But there were things, for instance, when they caught the man gathering firewood on the Sabbath day, they didn't know what to do. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Moses know, know the Torah? Yeah. So what did Moses had to do? He had to go and inquire of the Almighty. What do we do? We caught this man. Now we know that he, he's violated the Sabbath, but we don't know what to do with him. They put him in, in jail, put him in ward. And the Almighty says, this is what you do. This is what you do. We know that when Moses went up in the mountain to receive the, as we saw, now, as, as we discovered, some of you already knew, those of you who are joining us on Thursday, for Exodus, you know that Moses went up, father called Moses up. He says, come on up here, Moses, and I'm going to give you stone tablets, a law, and some commandments. Now, wait a minute. 
any anybody in their right mind. But see, here's how preachers and churches and pastors and bishops and elders have locked us into a way of thinking. Because most people believe that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days receiving stone tablets written by the hand of God. Like that's all he, he received. When if you read when he went up, Father began to give him instructions after Exodus chapter 24, which we're going to get into chapter 25 this coming Thursday, where now he starts receiving instructions while he is in the mountain during this 40 days that have absolutely nothing to do with what is written on those stone tablets. And yet we believe that he was up there 40 days receiving stone tablets like it took God 40 days to inscribe stone tablets. We have to be careful that we don't let people brainwash us. Our minds have to remain open to the work of the spirit to show us things because you will see and not see. You will hear and not hear. You will read right over what's there because you already believe you know what's there. And it'll only reinforce what you believe and keep you stuck in what you believed. When father is trying to bring us into a place to where we're operating in the mind of Messiah. And I'm going to tell you something. That's a glorious place to be. Why? Because you're able to think the thoughts of the almighty. He'll start showing you stuff and revealing things to you and speak to you. Things that you didn't know. Things that eyes had not heard or seen. Ears had not heard. He'll reveal things to you. And then people will ask you, well, where do you get such wisdom from? No, it's not coming from me. It's the revelation of the Almighty that he gives to me. But how many of you know, anyone who take the time to get into his presence can receive these revelations. But you got to remove all, all the hindrances and the blockages and the mindsets that you've already established and the paradigms that you've allowed people to establish in you. Because religion messed us up. And people can go through life moving from one religion to another. Take off that religion and put on another one. Take off that doctrine and put on another one. And then you'll find yourself trying to, you know, exercise your knowledge and wisdom among other people to impress them with the knowledge that you have. Well, what good is that doing you brothers and sisters if it's not being applied in your life? You know, as I've said before, I've had people talking about, you know, y'all need to listen to Bailey because he's teaching the truth on the Sabbath. Well, if Bailey's teaching the truth on the Sabbath, why aren't you keeping the Sabbath, bro? Why are you telling people I'm teaching the truth? If you really believe I'm teaching the truth, wouldn't you be doing it? I don't need that kind of false advertisement because you're a hypocrite. You're saying people to one thing and you're doing something else. And what are people seeing? They're seeing you with your lips and lip service. And here you are working on the Sabbath day. Well, uh, <laughs> well, until you start keeping the Sabbath, please stop telling people I'm teaching the truth. I don't need your testimony. In fact, your testimony does more damage than good. And so he's going to turn the hearts of the father. 
Yeshua had informed his disciples back in chapter 11 of Matthew. Notice what he said. For this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied unto John. And then he said this to his disciples. And if you will receive it, if you receive it. Now this is in Matthew 11. Here we are in Matthew 17 and they're still struggling with what he taught. Meaning, they hadn't received it. See, there are many people who read the writings of Messiah or read what Yeshua said, but haven't received it. You know how you know you've received it? When you're walking in it. Otherwise, you're no different than the person who said, Bailey teaching the truth on the Sabbath, about the Sabbath, but not honoring the Sabbath. It should help you understand, too, why Messiah would tell some people, don't tell nobody what I said. Don't tell nobody. Don't tell them because when you bear witness to something, when you begin to testify, when you begin to teach, when you begin to preach, you know what people do? They examine and scrutinize everything you do and say. They're looking for ways to trap you, to show you that you're a hypocrite. You're talking all this stuff, but you ain't keeping no law. (laughs) You're not a law abiding believer as it relates to the Torah or the commandment. You talk that Torah stuff. You know, if you break one law, you break them all. (laughs) And this is coming from somebody who ain't even studying them. Why listen to them? Why are you listening to people who have already demonstrated and showed you that their love for the almighty is not what they claim it to be. But yet they have a way of getting into your spirit. How you allow people get in your spirit like that? They've already demonstrated that their walk is, is at best, you know, wavery. One minute they strong for God. The next minute they don't know. I don't know. It could mean, it could mean, it could. So now you're eisegeting the scriptures and eisegeting what he's saying to you and reading into this and reading into that. And then you bring the books in. Don't argue with people who are coming to you from commentary. Commentary is other people's opinion. Everybody's got opinion. And everybody who's written a commentary is writing from their denominational, doctrinal, perspective. And we know that there are a variety of doctrinal perspectives out there just because they got a PhD behind their name. They got a PhD from a university or a college that had a doctrinal persuasion. There's one doctor that you really need to pay attention to. And his name is not Jesus. His name is Yeshua. Some call him Yehoshua. (laughs) Just better make sure you listen to the right doctor. Then the disciples understood that he spoken to them of John the Baptist. So he had to remind them. So, oh, oh, I get it now. And this is why there's 
seemingly repetition because some of us simply have to be reminded. And some of us have to hear it a few times before it sinks in and we get that revelation. Oh, now I understand it. Because see, once you understand it, once you got it, you locked and loaded. You, you got concrete in your heels now. Steadfast. And I'm going to tell you, if you're going to walk this walk with Messiah, you're going to have to be steadfast. There's a lot of folks that are being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Interestingly, those who follow Jewish traditions continue to look for Elijah every Passover. You go to a Passover Seder and here you got people got children going to the door to see if Elijah is there. What's that? See, people who do these things by keeping these traditions, many messianics disregard what Yeshua is teaching. If you're still looking for Elijah at your Passover Seder, why? If he's already come, according to the Messiah, why you keep looking for him? You and your Afikomans. Folks get a little bit when I start hitting those traditions. Oh man, don't hit the traditions. I like them traditions. Yeah, but those traditions are keeping you in lies. And because of your traditions, you make his word of no effect. And if his word is of no effect, how is it affecting and imparting your life? Because you apply what you believe. And, and traditions will show you what's mixed in with what you'll believe. Well, you now start teaching traditions as commandments by practice making the word of Jehovah of no effect. You follow me? I'm almost done. On a different note, we also will experience the transfiguration. Transfiguration's examples and experiences based on the word. See, we're all supposed to experience transfiguration. I remember as I was preparing this, I had, I remember two events back in the day. I remember I was doing a funeral and I was, I was standing there. And then after the funeral, this large the guy was bigger than me. He was a large Native American man, came up to me, and he said, during the whole time you was preaching, there was this huge angel standing behind you. Now, I didn't see no angel, but either he's lying or he saw what he saw, and just because I didn't see it didn't mean he didn't see what he saw. So I just tucked that behind. It's like, okay, why do he feel a need to tell me that? And then... I was doing a teaching and when I finished this person, I don't remember. I just remember the event came up to me and said, you know, there was this big bright light that surrounded you during the teaching. Now I ain't seen no light and I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> you know, I've dealt with some folks like this before, you know, they're a little kooky. But I, I put it, you know, it, it kind of stayed there. And while I was doing this teaching, because I, I never associated the transfiguration to us. I never thought to associate a transfiguration to us. When in fact, this is exactly what Paul does in Romans chapter 12. 
When he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of Elohim, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto Elohim, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transfigured. There's a transfiguration that all of us experience, which will come as we renew our minds. That means we're getting the garbage of the old man out and the truth of the new man that is going to come to us in our relationship with the Almighty. And we'll experience the same kind of transfiguration, not in the sense of the vision that Peter, James and John, but our own transfiguration. That's a transfiguration, same word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of Elohim. Do you know he wants you to know his perfect will for your life? He wants you to know. But I'll tell you, just like the disciples, when Yeshua called those disciples until now, now notice, whatever your philosophy is, if you believe he was here three and a half years, a year and a half, 70 weeks, whatever, here's the conclusion. When Yeshua resurrected, or when he was crucified and buried, you know, the disciples that had been with him all that time went back to their old ways of doing things. You could say they backslid. With all that teaching, with all those things they witness, with all the stuff they experience walking side by side with the Almighty in Messiah, sleeping day and night, walking, seeing him raise the dead, cast out devils, heal the sick. And now they're, instead of fishers of men, which they were, after being fishers of fish, they are going back to fishing fish and no longer fishing men. Messiah comes, regather them. What does that say for us? You got to gather yourself. You're subject to backsliding and going back to the old way. As soon as things don't work out the way you want them to, what has to happen for you to backslide? Your wife leave you? Your husband leave you? Your mom, dad, pass away, your child, what has to happen? Or are you in a place in your life, regardless to what happens, though he slay me, like Job says, I will trust him. Yes. Doesn't matter who falls to the left. It doesn't matter who falls to the right. Am I in this thing for the long haul? Or am I in this thing as long as things are going well? Because I'm going to tell you, there'll be days when things don't seem to be well, there'll be days when it seems like everything is turned against you. There'll be days when you'll be tried to the point to where you not only want to quit, but you rather you be like Jonah. You know, if only you would kill me. You know, I know I don't believe in suicide, but maybe I just got to get somebody to kill me. Because I don't want to live no more. Why, why don't you want to live anymore? What would cause you to not want to live? Ask yourself, is the thing you're going through in your life that difficult to where you want to check out? Why would you want to check out if you haven't fought the good fight and finished the course? Do you know what the course is? 
Do you know what fight you should be fighting? You know what your plan, what is planned for you, what, what is will? Because once you know that, nothing can get in the way. But until you know that, a lot of things can get in the way. 2 Corinthians 3.18, change. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory, the glory of the Lord are changed, transfigured into the same image. There is a change that is to take place in us at some point to where now we are changed into the same image and glory as he was. Now, what that looked like, I don't know. It could have been those angels for me. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I'm in this. I'm in this. It was from that event on the mountain that Peter wrote in his epistle. And these are the final scripture. For we are not followed. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from Elohim, the father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard, when we were with him in the holy mountain, he's testifying about this because now Messiah is gone. He's writing about it, his experience. For we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of Elohim spake as they were moved by the Holy ghost. And I believe Peter cuts off right there. But if you go into the next chapter, chapter two, second Peter, he continues on by talking about how there were false prophets among them, how they devised cunning and conniving tales and made the people merchandise. Their goal was simply to get from people what they wanted from people being used as so-called ministers who were in it for the wrong reason. Now, most ministers believe that they're in this for the right reason. But brother, sister, if you're in ministry for the right reasons, why are you committing fornication? Why are you committing adultery? Why are you sleeping with other men's wives and other women's husbands? Why are you living a lie? And I'll, I'll throw this hard and heavy. Why are you teaching people to tithe when you reject the Torah? There's nothing in the New Testament about tithing other than Yeshua says to the Pharisees, you people tithe in your mint and anus. It's like, those are herbs, bro. 
You got people down to the minutest detail, but he's not, he's accusing them. When you have preachers who are telling you they're under grace, not under, under law, that they don't have to obey the commands, the law, and then bind you to something that is clear in the law, that's hypocrisy. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints.